Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We will hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and, of course, healthier. I'm your host, Peter Tilden, joined by Anna Vaccino and Dr. David Kipper. And today we've got breaking news, as we do every time we do one of these episodes. David, we ready to go? I'm all ready. Throw it at me. Today, we're going to be discussing SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, you know, getting depressed in the fall, what you can actually do, pregnancy and how it changes your brain. I remember I had Swiss cheese brain when I was pregnant. I'm pretty sure I still have it 24 years later, so I'm looking forward to hearing about that. And this just happened. This looks to be exciting, a new breakthrough in epilepsy treatment, and I'm concerned about that since I have it in my family, epilepsy in the family. I'm dying to hear what that is. And then we got, hey, what about me? A question about the vaccines. Everybody's questioning vaccine time. Everybody's scheduling vaccine time. You should know what's going on. So we're going to do all of that in today's episode. Okay. Seasonal affective disorder, depression in the winter. Is this a, is this a real thing? What can you do? Is it more of like a, you know, when you actually have a winter? Tell us everything, doc. Probably 5% of people every year have this. Doesn't sound like a big number, but if you look at 360 million people in the country, that adds up. And also this situation can last up to five months. It doesn't just end January 1st. So what is it? What causes it? We think that it's caused because of the change in daylight exposure. Remember now in the in the fall and the winter, we're, we're having shorter days and we're having less sunlight. And with that comes a change in the functioning of parts of our brain. Specifically, the hypothalamus uh, doesn't work quite as well during this period of time. It needs more light. And what happens to the hypothalamus is that it produces less serotonin. It changes things in our sleep, our temperature our hunger drive, our thirst, sex drive, blood pressures change. So the lower the light levels during the winter, the more we disrupt our circadian rhythm. And the symptoms are very reproducible, and people that get it, get it again. So this is not something that is a one-off. People often, you know, repeat this. So what do people look like when they get sad? They get sad. They feel low. They're tearful. They're hopeless. They're lethargic. Uh, they don't concentrate as well. Uh, they're anxious. They're angry. They get more illness. They're more prone to getting these infections that are running around in the winter. And appetite can change. Perception changes. Uh, people that are going through the holiday season perceive everyone else out there having a great time when, in fact, they're not. So these are the symptoms that we see. It is a reproducible group, and it is very much associated with this change in sunlight. I'm still laughing about the holiday, the perception that other people have. I know. A good time. Just knock randomly on door. They should do tours with depressed people who have sad to show them that everybody's just as depressed with their family Everybody as you are. Everybody just had a fight with their family. Everybody can't afford all the presents. Um. <laughs> yeah, kids are running around on a sugar high. People are people are <laughs> people are fighting. People are drunk. It's, Every it's, mom it's, is still doing all the cooking. It's twenty twenty three. Yeah, it's forced okay. family time when you see cousins you've never liked. Exactly. As we start this conversation about how do we, how do we prepare for these things, 
you've named a couple stressors. You named um, the shopping, the spending, the family. Any other stressors that you see this time of year? Vacation time, people. Your schedule changes yes. there too. Traveling. Traveling is very stressful. And I was thinking too, when you're talking about like the exposure to light and having less light, it's just when you are on the East Coast or in Chicago, it's like, it's so dark, so early. And you just, I don't know, to me, it, 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 it bums me out. But maybe now I've lived it. I grew up on the East Coast. Maybe now I've lived in California for too long where I, if it's more than two days without sunshine, I freak out. Well, to Anna's point, David, so is, is it demarcated by parts of the country? Because certain parts of the country, people are indoors, aside from the daylight hours, you're indoors. Back East, you're indoors. Right. From the minute it gets really cold and snow. Until March. So because of that, is, is it worse in certain pockets? Absolutely. It is worse in certain pockets. Let's talk about these things we just mentioned to give the listeners some things to do to mitigate this. Anybody have any great ideas about how to mitigate that problem? I got an idea. I bought one of those. I never use it, but I bought it years ago. It's one of those lights that you can have inside that reproduces sunlight to help you with the depression. Everybody should give that as a gift. Give the gift of sunlight. That's awesome. They work, by the way. There is uh, research and data that show that these light boxes work for people with depression. You're, if you start your morning with 10 to 20 minutes under one of these light boxes, uh, you put it in a brightly lit room and you sit under this, you can, you know, however you spend that 10 to 20 minutes, but it really does make a difference. So yes, there's a, there's a gift that keeps giving. But there are lifestyle issues that I think need to be maintained. So people get out of their habits of exercising, of eating well. Look, it's hard to eat well during the holidays. But if you can somehow pay attention to your lifestyle issues, just getting sleep is, is another issue. People stay up late. They're social. But if you can try to manage some kind of lifestyle issues that are healthy for you, that's important. See a doctor. See your doctor to see if you have any underlying, people that have underlying depression and anxiety to begin with, talk to your doctor about what kind of things you can do. Do you need to up your meds? Do you need to change your medicines? Um, Vaccines, good time to get vaccines. So you mitigate the illnesses that are out there. But to Peter's point earlier, the best single thing you can do, in my opinion, is to get a light box. All right, pregnancy brain. The forgetfulness of pregnancy, I, I experience this and people talk about it. Is this a scientific fact? It is a scientific fact. Are babies brain- siphoning off our brain power? Is that what's happening with these embryos? <laughs> well, well, they're creating a chemical shift, absolutely. How dare but they? We've, we've known for a long time that there are hormonal changes, obviously, in pregnancy. And it, there's a rise in estrogen and progesterone and... We've never really understood why this is, where this comes from. But recently in England, they did some studies once again with mice, and they found that there are some wiring changes that happen because of these hormonal shifts. Here's how this works. You get more estrogen and progesterone during pregnancy. And if you have this abundance of progesterone, which you do, This is going to change some of the pathways in the brain, and they weed into other neurons. So they actually, there's neuroplasticity that happens during this period of time. 
and these hormones create these changes into other neurons and other uh, neurologic pathways that change the way people, the way women relate to being pregnant and to, and to becoming mothers. And it's very clear how this happens. And you, they've seen this on MRI and other things happen in the brain also. There's a reduction in volume in the brain that happens during pregnancy, another thing that we can see with MRI. And then as the baby is delivered, you see that change back. You see those volumes uh, increase again. So the primary issue that we think accounts for the, the brain in pregnancy are these shifts in progesterone and how they interface with other neural pathways that create these behavioral changes. If you block the progesterone receptors, you don't see these same parenting reflexes. It impairs the parenting reflexes. And it probably does explain why these things that we call baby brain or the mental fog, some people believe these changes are related to postpartum depression. It's not by accident. And some of these changes are thought to be permanent. Some of these parenting changes really change how people see their kids. I always feel like it's an interesting thing what women go through to get pregnant and have kids. And I only had the one, but it's interesting that like our bodies completely change, but now our, it's verified that our brains also completely change. So uh, know what you're getting into, ladies. So the brain changes that happen. Would they, would they be described, if you're looking at them, are, are they behavioral changes that would benefit a child? Yeah. Is there a positive spin on this? <laughs> Absolutely. It is a positive spin. This is about caring and nurturing. These are things that happen to the benefit of, of raising your child. This just happened is a big one because it looks like a true breakthrough, an epilepsy treatment. And again, for me, it's a bit selfish because I have somebody in the family. And I didn't know growing up that many people with it. it, appeared, is, it is there more of a prevalence of epilepsy today, as a matter of fact? It's very common, Peter. I, I think we just diagnose it a little easier. I'm not sure wow. more of it is out there. I think we're just more aware of it. 50 million people have epilepsy. Wow. And a, and a third of these people... Um, are treatment resistant. So that's why these stories, I think, are really very important for families that are dealing with this. Peter, you understand this. That Oh, it's, it's, uh, a, it's, it's really, it's isolating. Remember, especially if you have a kid with it, there's so many repercussions to this. And again, in our situation, thank goodness, there was a medical medicine that, that did work. But we know a few people who have a situation where the medicine did not work. They can't find a medicine. There are only X amount of medicines, right, David? There aren't that, there, there's not a deep bench, let's put it that way. No, and there are other techniques that are rather drastic, which is cutting out parts of the brain where these pathways go. You know, epilepsy is an overexcitation of the nerve cells in the brain, and that leads to a seizure. And you can block these excitations with our old neurotransmitter friend, gabapentin. But in people with epilepsy, the GABA system breaks down 
is not as uh, productive. So it allows for that excitation to take over. The calming neurotransmitter, gabapentin, isn't there to calm it down, and there, there are your seizures. So these nerve cells, again, the GABA nerve cells, they degenerate, and that becomes part of how they've come to this new theory with the stem cells, which I think is really fascinating. There are these researchers in San Francisco that were able to transplant inhibitory GABA-secreting neurons to restore that balance between over-excitation and calm. And in doing so, these seizures stopped. In many people, they stopped. And in a, another large percentage, they slowed down and were suppressed. So they came up with this really fascinating. They took these stem cells, and we know stem cells are, are, are cells that we can direct into different kinds of cells. So they directed these cells into neural cells, and they added this substance called NRTX 1001. Don't ask me how that name came about, but that was basically the gabapentin that they were able to supply and put into these nerve cells that they developed from these stem cells. And they just injected them into the brains. And these neural cells with the extra gabapentin found their way into these circuits and did their work. And they had a long lifespan. They didn't die out. They, you know, they stuck around. They also did something else. They also eliminated some of the scarring that takes place in epilepsy. So people that have long-standing epilepsy end up with scarred areas in their brain. When they put this substance with these new and improved stem cells, they saw that there was far less scarring in the brain. And these were seen through imaging studies. David, how practical is this? How soon? How available? Well, they've done this now. You know, obviously, these studies were not initially done in humans. We're back to the mice. But they've now done this in a few humans, and they've had the same results. They've had excellent results. So this technology is here. And they're looking at this technology by, by transplanting uh, stem cells that have been manipulated and then infused with, if you will, uh, for instance, dopamine into people with Parkinson's. That's where the research is going next because there's a, there's a dopamine deficiency. And here there's a gabapentin deficiency in people with epilepsy. And they're looking at this for pain syndromes and Alzheimer's. They're looking at this for a number of other illnesses. But this all gets us back to this conversation that we've had over and over again about stem cells and what they're going to do for every single system. All right. Today in our Hey, What About Me segment, which allows you to ask Dr. Kipper a question, it's about the doctors that invented the vaccines. Let's hear the call. Hi, Dr. Kipper. I see the Nobel Prize for Medicine was given this week to a couple of doctors that invented the mRNA vaccines technologies. Could you please explain what exactly this is, how it works, and why it took so long to become available? You're right. There were two doctors, uh, Dr. Carrico and Dr. Weissman, who'd been working on the mRNA uh, vaccines for over a decade. And we have traditionally in our vaccines, we've taken a piece of a bad guy, a pathogen, 
a virus, a bacteria, tuberculosis, COVID, you name it. And these, we would take these pathogens and we would mute them in some way. And then we would inject them into the system and our immune system would recognize them as foreign. And we would get this overwhelming inflammatory reaction and it would knock them out and they would remember what this little piece of mutated tuberculosis looked like or um, polio? Absolutely. Chickenpox. I mean, all these things that we have vaccines for. What mRNA does is it doesn't take the bad guy. It takes just a tiny little piece of its genetics through the mRNA. And the mRNA extracts this piece of genetic material that is common to these, whatever these bugs are, and it reproduces these proteins, makes a lot of these proteins that are not the actual pathogen, but that are part of the genetics of the pathogen, it reproduces enough of this protein. And now the immune system sees this protein as foreign, as an invader. So number one, they're a lot easier to produce. You don't need to to have to mitigate these bacteria and viruses and pathogens. Uh, The flu shot, (laughs) we make a flu shot by taking eggs and we grow the virus on the eggs. And I don't know if you remember, but several years ago, we ran out of flu vaccine because we ran out of eggs and they they couldn't make enough of the vaccine. So that's laborious. This is not laborious. This is very efficient. And you can make these very easily. And not only can you make these easily, but now we have these variants, right? We all know about the COVID variants. We all know about the flu variants. The flu changes its face every year. So all you have to do now with these mRNAs, you can take a little piece of that new variant and make a bunch of proteins that look like that piece. And you put that into the vaccine. And now you're protecting yourself against multiple areas of variance and prodigy, if you will, of these pathogens. How long does it take them to do that, to get the, like, when it, how long from, like, we've discovered the new variant to we now have a piece and it's in a vaccine? It didn't take long because they were able to determine the, again, they went after the genetics of the pathogens. Mm. They didn't go after the pathogen itself and find it and change it and inject it. They went, they took the pathogen, they figured out its genetics, and then they, with that, they were able to, to make proteins that were aligned with those genetics, made a bunch of those proteins, and stimulated the immune response. So it didn't take a long time. And in fact, we're going to be able to recreate these vaccines for things like flu and COVID pretty quickly because we're just going to be able to make these, as these things come in, we can make new vaccines. Wrapping up, we talked about seasonal affective disorder and um, how to help it out. So sad is coming and it does affect a lot of people, but let's try to be preemptive here. Get a light box. If you're one that has had this before, look at lifestyle issues, look at the things that stress you out during the holidays, your family, your shopping, your traveling. Try to make some inroads into 
limiting that stress and light boxes. Uh, yeah, no, that sounds great. I've been hearing so much about light boxes and all the infrared stuff. I want all the, bo- I want to just lay in front of lights all day long. Um, probably because when I was pregnant, my pregnancy brain is now still with me. Apparently what we've learned about pregnancy brain is that it really is as would make sense hormonally related. There's this elevation in the amount of progesterone in the brain and certain areas of the brain. And that actually creates new neural pathways in these areas of the brain that are responsible for parenting and and how people respond to becoming a new mom or a new dad. And these things become permanently imprinted and they are real and they last. And this just happened a huge breakthrough on epilepsy treatment. I didn't realize until you threw out the number, David, 15 15 million people with epilepsy. That's a huge number. Now the approach has been to create these stem cells, develop them into neural cells that work in the brain that can deliver gabapentin, the neurotransmitter that's calming, because the physiology of a seizure is that the gabapentin receptors and the gabapentin influence in the brain is compromised. And there's more excitation than there is calming because, again, the GABAs don't work as well in epilepsy. So they've created these neurons from stem cells and they've juiced them with gabapentin and they've injected them into the brain and they've reestablished that equilibrium between the excitation and the calm and it works. Which is amazing. And then the, the scientists who were just awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine uh, for helping establish the mRNA vaccine, correct? And the mRNA vaccine is a whole new approach to treating these pathogens that come into our system. No longer are we going to be taking these pathogens and trying to alter them to stimulate the immune response. We're going to take these genetic pieces of these pathogens with the help of the mRNA. This is its brilliance. And we're going to be able to create these vaccines. They're safe. We can, they're very efficient. Uh, they're easy to make. And they're adaptable to when these pathogens change. And frankly, what we're going to be also using for this mRNA vaccine going forward, and they're being tested now, on cancer, malaria, HIV, herpes, Lyme disease, shingles, acne. There are a million applications of the mRNA vaccine and the mRNA idea. And by the way, if you have a question for Dr. Kipper, head on over to bedsidematters.org and ask your question. It might just get answered on the air. And you can contact us on socials on Instagram at Bedside Matters Podcast, on Twitter at Bedside Pod. And by the way, I want to mention Dr. Kipper's book, Override. Make sure to check it out. It's all about how we biologically and psychologically are predisposed to perform a certain way. And if you're interested in knowing why you perform the certain way that you do or changing your behavior, this would be the book. And by the way, order it early for the holidays. Get it? And Anna Vicino, go to her website, you can order all of her stuff too. She's got the recipe box, the sauces and spices, the cookbooks, anavicino.com. And you're in stores now. You're, you're a lot of places. So check a her out. A lot of stores, 32 states. Stores too. And of course, thank you at home for listening to Bedside Matters or in your car or your aunts or wherever you are. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, 
We're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday, so follow us, like us, and have a great week. The information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.